This is a Federal News Network podcast. Sometimes nations declare war on themselves. When a civil war broke out in Ethiopia back in 2020, my next guest worked overtime to ensure humanitarian aid got to those who were desperate for it and to try and mitigate some of the human rights abuses. Now he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He's the director of the Office of East African Affairs at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Jonathan Dworkin joins me now. Mr. Dworkin, good to have you on. Great. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. And tell us, first of all, about what the situation is you're dealing with, because unfortunately it kind of got lost in the news cycle because of occurring during the pandemic. Well, first let me say, uh, although I'm the one nominated for this Sammy Award, it's a true team effort. International development, as I like to say, is a team sport, and our team that works on Ethiopia across USAID, but especially in Addis Ababa, our American staff and local staff, really a, a tremendous team. So even before the war, uh, USAID had been working in Ethiopia for decades. We've been helping by providing humanitarian assistance and education and health care. But what happened is that in late 2020, following weeks of escalating tensions between Tigrayan leaders in the north of Ethiopia and federal authorities in the capital, fighting broke out. Two million people were forced to flee their homes. And after a short period of time, almost a million people were facing the threat of famine. About a year later, in late 2021, because the fighting had spread towards the capital, all USAID American staff and their families had to leave out of concern for their safety, which complicated things a bit further. So it was a challenging environment. But the work had actually started when the Civil War broke out in 2020. That's right. We immediately had to shift our focus to humanitarian assistance, getting food, medicine, and shelter to those who needed it in the North. But we also had to start new programs. So we started work countering disinformation and hate speech, which was fanning the flames of conflict, and supporting human rights investigators because of the massive human rights abuses that we saw with the conflict. At the same time, though, we needed to continue our longer-term work that have been helping Ethiopia for decades, such as in healthcare, giving families malaria nets, textbooks for kids in schools, and all those things. What we had to be clear, though, on is we were giving assistance to all Ethiopians. Regardless of the region, regardless of their ethnic group, we were impartial to the conflict. And of course, As with any crisis in Washington, we had to coordinate within and outside the agency and work with others, especially to make sure we were doing everything we could in Washington to start programs and keep our programs going, working collaboratively with Congress and other donors and UN officials. So to do this, USAID leadership really looked to the experts, people on my team and elsewhere, to lead and bring all of this together with daily calls from people throughout USAID and throughout the world to make it happen in Ethiopia. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, How many people were on the ground in Ethiopia from USAID and other agencies versus how many people you had as the local agents and contractors and NGOs that work under USAID in foreign countries? So on the ground at the USAID mission in Addis, we have about 40 Americans, but well over 100 local staff. These are local hired experts that work full-time for USAID. They may be doctors and accountants, experts in health and sanitation. 
that help manage the programs on a day-to-day basis. At the same time, we probably had over a thousand people that were what we call our implementing partners, UN agencies such as the World Food Program, a non-governmental organization such as Catholic Relief Services that are providing the actual assistance on the ground, as well as a number of contractors. Sure. We're speaking with Jonathan Dworkin. He's director of the Office of East African Affairs at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And in a civil war situation, it must be particularly dangerous because it's not another country attacking a country where there is at least a modicum of international understanding that there are neutrals there. But civil wars in some ways are harsher, and you must have the problem of each side suspecting you're really on the side of the other. And how do you manage that one? That's exactly right. I think it was a really dangerous environment, especially for our implementing partners in the north. And there were actually a number of aid workers that worked for them that were killed. And we were also worried really about our local staff some of whom were under suspicion and were detained and harassed. And the critical thing that we did here, which is what we do everywhere, is to make sure that we're just crystal clear that our assistance is to all Ethiopians. We highlight that it's going everywhere in its country and to everyone to get the message out that our focus is just on the Ethiopian people. And when you said that one of the tasks was to help combat disinformation, that gets you into probably deeper looking like, oh, they're on their side and side B saying, oh, they're on their side. What we do in situations like that is support locals, often civil society organizations that set up organizations to call out disinformation and hate speech. And we found that it can be very effective. But in a lot of situations, it's really an uphill battle. So basically, then it's fair to say you were not referee, but simply trying to be a neutral doing a third thing, which is non-combat related. Right. Just trying to make sure that Ethiopians knew the truth about what was happening in their country. And we were supporting journalists and others to get that out. And with respect to the real issue of the famine and the humanitarian aid that you were tasked to do, what are some of the numbers? What were you able to get into people's hands and, I guess, mouths? Well, for the longest time, a lot of the assistance in northern Ethiopia was blocked and there was very little going through. Now the situation has changed. Both sides have declared a humanitarian truce and assistance is starting to go in terms of actually hundreds of trucks every day that are going into the Tigray region. Much more needs to be done, but we're well over 100 a day, so we're making progress and we're cautiously optimistic. And has the level of harassment from one side or the other dropped a little bit now that they hopefully understand that you're not taking sides? It has indeed. I think the situation really is much better. But sometimes there are misunderstandings in in local areas. And so it's still a, a dicey environment. But as I said, we're cautiously optimistic and things are going on the right track. And the war itself, is there an end in sight or a truce in sight? And maybe you could still continue the mission, but without as much fear and danger. Well, both sides have undertaken a humanitarian truce and committed to allowing assistance in. So we think that's a first step. There's still a lot more that needs to be done before we're at a sustainable peace. But we're in a much better place than we were several months ago. And because you are a Sammy's nominee, I'd like to hear a little bit about your own background, how you got to this particular job and what motivated you to join public service in the first place. Sure. So early in the 1990s, before I had even heard of USAID, I was in Somalia 
And a colleague took me to a meeting held between humanitarian relief organizations, such as the UN and NGOs, and military officers who were deployed to Somalia to help relief efforts. And someone from USAID, which I had never heard of, was running this meeting. And what I saw there were smart professionals trying to get aid to hungry Somalis. They were living in someplace dangerous, but dedicated to really something bigger. And I watched in that meeting almost 30 years ago and said, I want to be part of that. So to be here almost 30 years later and be a finalist for helping people in Africa, it's really come full circle and is just so overwhelming for me. Jonathan Dworkin is director of the Office of East African Affairs at the U.S. Agency for International Development and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all but, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.